Hello, everyone. My name is Justin Waring. I'm an investment strategist with the Chief Investment Office. I'm here today with Ainsley Carbone, Total Wealth Strategist, and Katie Williams, who's our Discovery Strategist. We wanted to just take a few moments to talk about some of the most you know, prevalent behavioral biases, because as investors, there's often a, a gaping chasm between what the textbook uh, rational investor might do in a certain situation and how we actually behave in real life. And some of those behavioral biases can be detrimental to our long-term returns and others are just kind of interesting and we can learn from them uh, to improve our behavior as investors. So we just want to talk about a couple of these and tell a few stories that we've learned over the years um, and just share with you some of our insights as, as we've been in investing over the years. So one that I find really interesting that I certainly experience every single day in my life just about is the anchoring bias. So I, I just I brought the definition so that I don't mess it up for you all. <laughs> so the anchoring bias, it's a cognitive bias that causes us to rely too heavily on the first piece of information we are given about a topic. So this can be something, for instance, this is where I experience it. Let's say I'm going to the grocery store. And I see that there's a sale on chocolate bars. If I see that it's a buy one, get one, and let's say I can pay $5 for two candy bars, and then I look at the price, and in reality, they're usually each $10. Well, instantly, I'm like, oh, well, I absolutely need to get this because it's such a good deal. Why would I want to pass up such a good deal? When in reality, going into that grocery store, I had no intention of buying any chocolate bars. Mm. I probably wanted to. Yeah. I definitely wanted to. <laughs> but by seeing that information, seeing it relative to that higher number, mm -hmm. it instantly made me think, oh, this is a good deal. When in reality, I'm, I'm not really basing my decision off of any factual information. Maybe they're not actually valued at that amount. Maybe I don't actually value them. I don't need them. So another instance, so my background, as you both know, is retirement. So one instance where we definitely see this a lot is with Social Security claiming. Again, anchoring, it's, it's relying too heavily on the first piece of information we see or hear. If I'm talking to someone about Social Security, they say, okay, well, when can I get it? And if someone says the earliest you can get it is 62, okay, well, I'm going to claim it at 62, but they're not realizing that they're going to be receiving reduced benefits, but they still focus on age 62, and that's why they claim oftentimes. That's why people like to claim at age 62. Another mm -hmm. one, Katie, you brought this up with me, retiring at 65. Okay, why are you going to retire at 65? Oh, I don't know. I mean, Medicare starts then. I think I'm just going to retire then. Well, have you thought about if you're financially ready to retire? What if you can actually retire earlier? Would you consider that? So just one experience or one bias that I certainly yeah. see about every single day. Well, and I think from a portfolio perspective, one of the things we see is the benchmarking and queuing success off of what our benchmark tells us our portfolio should be valued or performing, right? So if I want to retire at 65, right, where should I be at, at this point in my life? Mm -hmm. That's the benchmark we should be seeing regarding how well we're doing and the success we're having in our plan and our saving strategy, not what did the S&P do yesterday and am I above or below it? Because I could be well above the S&P 500 from a performance perspective, but if I'm not saving enough, 
I'm never going to be successful in retirement. So the anchoring, to your point, it it really frames a lot of how we see information and whether or not we attribute success or failure to it. Um, and from from an investing perspective, and I think, you know, the one that the behavioral bias that sticks with me probably the most because I find myself victim to it is the action bias. And it's the the drive to do something, whether or not you have data that says it's the right decision, right? So I'll compare it. Into, you know, when, when we hear about market headlines, you know, what's the first thing we do? Oh, my God, I got to do something. I got to trade, right? Well, why? I compare this a lot to when you're in traffic, I don't, you know, mm-hmm. or you're driving along, you see a slowdown and you're like, oh, I got to get off the interstate. I got to get off the highway, whatever, because I personally would rather be driving a car that's always moving, mm-hmm. even if uh, the consequences, I'm going to get to my destination 10 minutes late. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I've taken control. And for me personally, it comes from a need of control. I have to have control over the situation because then I can fix it. And we see... This happened a lot where you hear news headlines, the market's dropping. Oh, my God, I got to sell. Well, why? Why? Because the market's going down. But a lot of times we, we may see if we look at data, if we just stop and consider, sometimes the worst down days are followed by the best up days. And I don't know enough to get out and in at the right time. Yeah, and they so, both have to go right in order for you to make any extra money. Yeah, Exactly. So our drive to, you know, our drive to take action makes sense, and it's not necessarily wrong, right? We we have instincts for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's the system one and two, the thinking fast and slow that yeah. Daniel Kahneman talks about. Um, our instincts are there, and they're right, but the, the question when it comes to these emotional triggers, at least for me, they tend to be emotional triggers, is just stopping, breathing, <laughs> and looking at does it make sense to move forward, and are the consequences there? Does that outweigh the risks? You know, what are the benefits of, of doing something? Because doing nothing is also doing something. The the, the mm-hmm. act of being patient and taking time to weigh the risks is actually doing something. It's just the outward perception by everybody else is that you're doing nothing. And do you want to – are you okay with that? Right. Sticking with your long-term plan is the same thing as saying doing nothing. But they, those two phrases have very different connotations when we tell people to do nothing, it it actually kind of triggers a, a, something strange, which is really you're you must have a lack of creativity that you can't think of anything to do. Um, you know, have you really considered all the possible options? And it requires an immense amount of willpower to stick with your long term strategy because there will always be something that in the short term is doing better than your strategy. If you're a diversified investor, there's always going to be something in your portfolio that isn't working right then. Um, That's the sign of diversification. If everything in your portfolio is working, there's a good sign that there might be an environment where everything in your portfolio won't be working anymore. And actually, one of the things we've noticed recently is that stocks and bonds both did very, very, very well up until 2020. And Commodities had done very poorly for a long time. Hedge funds had done very poorly for a long time. And a lot of investors, you know, started to move away from those investments into plain vanilla stocks and bonds. And then now we're in an environment where both stocks and bonds are doing poorly, but we've seen a resurgence in commodity prices. Hedge funds are starting to deliver value again. And it's sort of, you know, when we have, when we see things in our portfolio that aren't working, there's this action bias, as you said, to sell them and 
and chase the performance of the things that are doing well. And if we do that on repeat, we're always buying high and selling low. And that is one of the major, um, you know, influences for why individual investors tend to lag, you know, broad benchmark indexes. Uh, because if we just keep buying high and selling low, it degrades our ability to keep up with the growth of the market. Well, and I think to your point about the exhaustion that comes from that is also comes back to the anchoring, right? We've seen our portfolio hit this particular yeah. value. Therefore, that's what it's worth. That's mm-hmm. what it should be worth when in actuality – Anchoring can work well if we're if we're looking at the appropriate goal, right? right? So if I'm if I'm looking and saying I need three million dollars to retire in ten years, that's what I need to anchor on, not what is the value of my portfolio today, yeah, as it relates to the Dow Jones or the S and P. And when we anchor to the all time high, we're not giving ourselves credit for the growth that we've built over the years. And so a lot of investors fall into this trap of comparing where they are versus the highest value they ever faced in the past. There's two problems with that. One of them is you're not giving yourself credit for what growth you've had so far. But the other is that, you know, over time, your portfolio will hit more and more all-time highs and larger and larger all-time highs. But there will inevitably be, with any investment strategy, moments in between where you're below the all-time high that you've just experienced, but but a recovery is coming. And so by constantly anchoring ourselves to that all-time high, um, we we trigger what we call loss aversion, which is that the pain of losses is twice as powerful as the pleasure we get from gains. And so it just leaves us in this in this feeling of of a lack of progress that can be very dis- disincentivizing for investing for long-term growth, and it can force us to to have um, the fight or flight response of kind of retreating into safer investments that, ironically guarantee we won't be able to make back the money that we lost because by moving into safe investments, you preclude the opportunity to get an advantage from the market rebound. And this is one of the reasons why bear markets can be so dangerous for investors because when the stock market is down a lot and you're seeing a lot of negative headlines, a lot of investors respond to that. Rather than uh, following their long-term plan, uh, they start to reevaluate whether, you know, what their investment strategy is. In, in reality, a lot of these behavioral biases come back to the fact that we don't have – we struggle to maintain an objective view of what we want out of our portfolio. So just like you were saying, Ainsley, when you go to the store, you don't walk around with an objective value of what every item in the store is worth to you, like fundamentally. And so, yeah, they can play all kinds of tricks on you because that's not – and so it's the same thing with your portfolio is we don't carry around with us an objective – value of where we should be and and we don't generally spend the time to build a benchmark like you were saying before about what our where we should be in the progress towards retirement and so it just gives us it 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 it, it is a reflection of the fact that we don't really have um an innate sense of how to benchmark ourselves or how to evaluate how close we are to our goals. And so when we fall back on things like the S&P 500, which are external to all of our goals and our, and our control, we're giving up power mm-hmm. to an external force that we don't have control over. And that is one of the reasons why a lot of investors get really dissuaded from investing when mm-hmm. markets are tough is yeah. because then you now have, have lost the sense of control and the sense of, of progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're sitting here in New York, and it's fall, and I think that is a a, a great segue into one of your favorite yeah. um, 
biases. Tell us a little bit about it and tell us about the name specifically. All right. So this is called the turkey illusion. And it is, imagine that you're a turkey on a farm and every day the farmer comes and brings you feed and treats you and your friends and your family really, really (laughs) nice. And so for several years, possibly maybe three years, Every day you're treated, you're you're being trained that humans are nice and kind, and then one day instead of coming with seed, he comes with an axe. In and, November, and you know when Thanksgiving comes, and and suddenly you you you're awakened to the fact that that actually you weren't really anticipating this change in circumstances, and as investors, yeah, one of the things that we notice is that. When we haven't seen a, a particular type of risk happen for a long time, we are sometimes blind to it. And so one of the strategies that we can use as investors is to go through what I call a pre-mortem. Well, I don't call it that. We all call it that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure how to attribute that name. Um, but the idea is begin with the assumption that you failed to meet your goals and then start to figure out what are the most likely culprits. What caused you to fail? And I think a lot of the times you can you can find holes in your investment strategy and your financial planning strategy that are independent of what you've experienced. And that's really important because we call it testing out of sample in the investing world. But basically, you want to be able to, to brace yourself for risks that you haven't yourself experienced. We tend to over-prepare for risks that we've experienced and and um, and always fight the last battle, if you will as opposed to being more creative and thinking about other things that, that could be a bigger risk to our investments. I I do love the idea of a pre-mortem. However, there are always these risks that we are not aware of. So it's difficult to sit here and think about, okay, how are what are the things that could occur that would make my financial plan fail? Well, there are a zillion things that I definitely do not know about yet. You don't know what you don't know. Yes, exactly. And and so there's this blind spot in that process. But I think this is definitely where a financial advisor can come into play because they've worked with so many different families that they're able to kind of cue you in on these mm-hmm. unknown risks that that could certainly be the culprit of these failures. One of the things I think about all the time when it comes to this is long-term care planning. I think the three of us have certainly spoken about this a lot, but it's essentially we see that the people who have had loved ones require long-term care planning. They're the ones that typically take more action to prepare for their own personal self needing that care in the future, whereas people who have never seen a loved one go through that don't really understand the risk that's involved with possibly needing that care. So that's just one example of what is it that you said, Katie? We don't know what we don't know. Don't know <laughs> that's, we just, don't know. that's one example. But I think working with a financial advisor or even just speaking with other people who have been through retirement and who have maybe had some difficulties, just getting that understanding from them so that hopefully you can prepare for it without having to actually be exposed to it yourself. Well, I echo that because I've done the exact same exercise with my advisor in terms of, okay, let's stress test this. What if I die too soon? What if I live too long? What if I run out of money? What are the situations that could cause me to be underfunded? Because for me, the where I am in my life, it's about 
planning for my kids and planning for retirement, right? And those things can be expensive. So I may not know what it's going to be that could cause me to not have money, but the end result would always be the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? And so what am I willing to do now and to control the variables I can control? Can I save more? Um, you know, should I be more diversified? Do I need to think about different vehicles, whether it's college planning and utilizing a 529 versus a standard investment account? Like, what does that mean? So by telling your advisor and saying, I don't know what I don't know, help me understand the stress tests that are out there that you can think through. Because your advisor has, to your point, has usually seen more than you have, and they're not going to walk you through every scenario, but they have the tools and they have the knowledge to objectively look at the portfolio from a data perspective and say, all right, what if we had a deep recession? What if we saw a draw, you know, a drawdown on your your returns? What does that mean? As long as you're willing to go through that exercise with your advisor, I think you'll feel more confident. Um, it's the same with these biases. Once you know they exist, I think it's always really helpful because you know you're not alone, right? This is, it's not just you, but you also understand that, okay, let me just stop. My, when I get into these situations, I usually call my advisor first and be like, you know, let's, let's talk about this. Help me understand what I'm, what I'm seeing, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling. And then just through dialoguing, I usually can um, course correct myself. Yeah, we're, we're sitting here talking about these behavioral biases and I, I certainly don't want anyone to think that just because we're aware of them, we don't fall victim to them. Mm-hmm. I This is what we do for a living. And I still go shopping all the time and buy stuff I don't need just because it's on sale. Yes. And so I think it's important for everyone to understand that awareness, like you said, Katie, is certainly a way to to start avoiding the consequences of these behavioral biases biases it's not a way to completely avoid them but it can be helpful and I think Justin you certainly gave a great way to avoid falling victim to your behavioral bias bias Uh, when it comes to anchoring I think one way that someone can try to avoid it is if you if there's ever a price involved there's (laughs) typically also anchoring involved and Mm. so if you're trying to make a decision to purchase something whether it's chocolate candy bars, shoes, clothing, stocks, you always want to make sure, am I basing this decision off of just the numbers that are in front of me? And if so, then you need to take more time to research and understand the value behind it. 100%. The question I always ask myself in those shopping situations is, would I buy this at full price? Mm-hmm. If I would, then it's valuable to me. Right. Um, but to your point, biases are not always bad right they to to the point of the action bias that actually can do have positive consequences if you will or positive impacts it's all about acting with information and understanding i think yeah i always say that worrying is the human superpower um, but we need to be constructive in how we respond to that i think worrying has got us us as a species to develop immensely. It's one of the reasons why we've become like the predominant species on the planet, because we're able to anticipate risks and and address them. But it can 
be, you know, doom scrolling is one of my favorite words that I learned during the pandemic. If you just spend all day reading negative news stories, it will really impact your your calm and could for could could lead you to make, you know, responsive uh, decisions. But, you know, I think one of the one of the quotes that most most sums up our conversation is that experience is the harshest te- uh, teacher because she gives the test first and the lesson afterwards. And I think one of the things, like you said, Ainsley, that we get a lot of value out of talking to our financial advisors is that they've, they've seen all of this before and you, and they give you the benefit of learning from other people's mistakes. We are often, um, you know, really inundated with these success stories of people who've made millions of dollars investing, you know, buying a lottery ticket or investing in this single stock or all these things that tell us that we could, we could be the lucky one. You know, there's always, there's a winner. It could be you, but there's a million people that do those things and, and lose all of the money they put into it. And uh, which this is called sampling bias or, or, or representative bias. And I think that, our advisors can help us really get context and and take a step back and really see what the bigger picture looks like and what the balance of risks and rewards look like. Um, and so, you know, I think that's a really valuable thing that we get from passing our decisions through uh, another human being, whether it's a financial advisor or talking through d- big decisions with our family. They can they can force us to really explain our thought process. And a lot of the times you'll find yourself explaining a bad decision and you'll realize halfway through explaining it that actually this is a bad decision. So just having that tiny filter can be really, really helpful. Yeah. So I think to summarize, for most biases, it can be helpful to talk it out with Correct. friends, family, <laughs> and even a financial advisor. Completely agree. Anything else we want to talk about before we wrap up? That's all that I have. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.